Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Coming up on the program, a talk with forensic anthropologist Dr. John Schultz. My research area is very unique in that I also use what's called ground-penetrating radar. And so ground-penetrating radar is just a tool we use. It helps us to uh, detect changes in the ground, that could indicate potentially archaeological sites, burials. As Eatonville celebrates 125 years as the oldest incorporated African-American town in the United States, we'll talk with quilters there. When we were children, we had our main meal at noontime. And then in the afternoon, we'd had tea, and she'd sit us out on the porch in the swing, and we'd have embroidery and quilt making. As the 23rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is underway in Eatonville, we'll talk with Hurston biographer Virginia Lynn Moylan. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. It can be said that the job of a forensic anthropologist is to speak for the dead whether they are examining new remains or ancient skeletons. Dr. John Schultz is Associate Professor of Forensic Anthropology at the University of Central Florida. You may remember Dr. Schultz from the Discovery Channel series Mummy Autopsy or more recently from his testimony at the Casey Anthony trial. With the proliferation of television crime dramas, most people are familiar with the job of the medical examiner. Dr. Schultz says that forensic anthropologists also work within the legal system, but their role is different from the medical examiner. Uh, medical examiners generally, um, um, in most jurisdictions in the U.S., they're going to either be medical examiners or coroners. In Florida, we have a medical examiners. They are in charge of the death investigation system. So their job would entail um, taking charge of any of the any deceased individuals, 
Uh, they would perform the autopsies. By law, they would provide cause and manner of death. Uh, the medical examiner can also consult with numerous experts to bring them in to help them with their decisions. One of them would be a forensic anthropologist. Uh, forensic anthropologist's expertise uh, uh, would be to study the human skeleton. And so uh, we have a couple of individuals that study the human skeleton at the graduate level when they go to school in an anthropology department. A bioarchaeologist would study the skeleton generally from an archaeological context. Forensic anthropologists would study the skeleton from a medical legal context. Many forensic anthropologists work within an historical context. For example, the joint POW-MIA Accounting Command was established in Hawaii in 2003. The mission of JPAC is to achieve the fullest possible accounting of all Americans missing as a result of the nation's past conflicts. John Schultz. There are... Um, um, uh, a number of routes that a forensic anthropologist would generally look for employment. Many people work at universities, could work at medical examiner's office. Um, the U.S. Army has what's called the Joint POWMI Accounting Command. It's called JPAC for short. Uh, this is the largest forensic anthropology laboratory in the world. I think they may have at least 30 forensic anthropologists. And their mission is to go to areas of prior conflict where USGIs would have died and the remains would not have been recovered. And their job is to actually go recover the remains, bring them back to this laboratory, which is based in Hawaii, uh, do an analysis, and ultimately try to identify those individuals and just so they can be buried in the States, um, can have a funeral with their loved ones. John Schultz is mostly involved with cases dealing with modern skeletons, but he does have significant experience with historic remains. Part of our role as forensic anthropologist is to determine when we deal with skeletal remains, we need to actually determine whether or not they're forensic. And at the same time, we could have archaeological material, teaching material, etc. We need to let the medical examiner know whether or not we're dealing with, say, an archaeology case or a forensic case. With that said, many forensic anthropologists may also have experience in archaeological methods. So they're bringing uh, their archaeological methods along with their expertise with the human skeleton. And so this could involve um, assisting law enforcement with potential graves that may have been disturbed. And so uh, I was involved with one case where a uh, headstone was pushed over. It was an older and an older cemetery. Um, uh, where this grave had actually been um, desecrated. This grave had been desecrated. They pushed a headstone over, and there was essentially a large pit at the location of where the grave was. And I was asked if I could help determine whether the skeleton or contents of the graves were actually disturbed. And so I had to work with law enforcement by excavating um, removing the disturbed area so we can see if the skeleton was actually damaged, which we were able to confirm and then uh, replace all the dirt soil back into the hole where the, uh, the grave was desecrated. As Dr. Schultz explains, there are many similarities between the work of a forensic anthropologist and an archaeologist. Our education begins in an anthropology department, and anthropology uh, consists of in the United States the Three main areas we see in most uh, universities would be social cultural anthropology, archaeology, and biological anthropology. So part of our training as a biological anthropologist when studying the skeleton can also involve archaeological field methods. And in particular, as a forensic anthropologist, 
Uh, I'm often called out to, let's say, assist with uh, locating and recovering a skeleton that has been dispersed, potentially, let's say, by carnivores. So I would be using my archaeological training to locate, recover, and document that particular scene. So absolutely, uh, the archaeology training, honestly, is just as important as the human osteology training. John Schultz works from an historical perspective more than most forensic anthropologists due to his frequent use of ground-penetrating radar. My research area is very unique in that I also use what's called ground-penetrating radar. And so ground-penetrating radar is just a tool we use. It helps us to uh, detect changes in the ground that could indicate potentially archaeological sites, burials. It's also used for many other applications. I've been involved in projects where I was consulting where there were road expansion projects uh, that went in area, road expansion that would occur next to a cemetery. And then I was called in to uh, assess whether or not there would be unmarked graves that would be impacted by the road expansion. So my job was essentially to use some archaeological methods uh, to make sure that there were no unmarked graves in those areas to try to provide some guidance as to whether or not uh, graves would be impacted if, uh, depending on where the road was going to uh, be placed. Dr. Schultz describes the ground-penetrating radar, or GPR, equipment and how it is used. Ground-penetrating radar is just a tool. Uh, it's a little cart. Uh, the, the original carts actually look like a, like a running cart, but it's going to have the, essentially a box on the bottom of it that's an antenna. The antenna is going to just admit continuous pulse into the ground. As a pulse goes into the ground, it's going to be reflected or refracted as the ground changes. And this returning signal is going to be captured by the antenna, and it's going to be displayed on a monitor. And then, based on the experience of the operator, they may be able to infer, based on size, location, depth, particular objects. So uh, ground-penetrating radar is becoming very popular for grave detection, but it was shown to be a tool that was useful for grave detecting, locating unmarked cemetery graves. And after it was a successful tool for cemetery graves, the next step was to use it to locate forensic graves. As an associate professor of forensic anthropology at UCF, Dr. Schultz is co-author of the book Forensic Recovery of Human Remains, Archaeological Approaches. It's basically a textbook. Uh, it can be used for a course. It can be used for law enforcement, for training. And it pretty much goes through all the steps that should be employed, recovering or excavating remains from a variety of different contexts. It talks about the different ways to excavate, collect, document, and all the other type of materials that need to be collected as well. In the Discovery Channel television series, Mummy Autopsy, John Schultz was one of a team of five mummy investigators looking at archaeological mummies or skeletal remains to try to tell their story. One case I remember the most is actually uh, we were in Ireland uh, looking at uh, skeletons of Vikings. And I remember we were looking at, they were, Vikings generally were young men. They may not have been that old. But I remember the one individual we were looking at was probably 19 or 20, and it was a very massive skeleton. This past year, the Florida trial of Casey Anthony for the murder of her daughter Kaylee was covered extensively by media around the world. 
Dr. John Schultz was one of the forensic experts called to testify at the Casey Anthony trial. I'm the consulting forensic anthropologist for the District 9 Medical Examiner's Office, which consists of Orange and Osceola counties. And so um, um, that case happened to be an Orange County case, so I was involved. Um, I was called out when the skeleton was first recovered, and I um, advised the advised the sheriff's department on how to process the scene. I did work with them at the scene. Uh, I did some excavating with them, but I was also, every day I would go out and identify the material that was recovered, let them know whether they were finding bones, whether they were human bones or animal bones. And I was able to, you know, to help them with the areas that needed to be uh, excavated, you know, and processed on the scene to ultimately uh, recover quite a bit of the skeleton. And then along with Dr. Warren at UF, I was also involved with the analysis of the skeleton. Dr. John Schultz is Associate Professor of Forensic Anthropology at the University of Central Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, shop for great books about Florida history and culture, utilize our great educational resources, and more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. In April 1528, a Spanish captain general named Panfilo de Narvaez landed at or near Tampa Bay with 300 men and 40 horses, determined to conquer Florida. Unfortunately for his expedition, he made two major mistakes after the landing. First, he instructed the ships bearing all of his food and supplies to sail north along the Gulf shore and to rendezvous with his marching units at a site that he did not identify accurately. With the result that he never saw the ships again. His second mistake, 
It was when he reached the vicinity of today's Tallahassee. There he so offended the local Apalachee chief that the Spanish encampment was constantly under native attack. Narvaez had barges built and attempted escape westward along the shore. Storms killed most of his men. Only four survivors reached safety in Mexico. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. This song is called Shove It Over, and it's a line and rhythm pretty generally distributed all over Florida. It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on a railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that, I gathered that in 33, 1933. <clears throat> when I get in a hill noise, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you lie in there. Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Eat him up, whiskers, or he won't shave. Eat him up, body lights, he won't bathe. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you lie in there? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Oh, the rooster chewed tobacco, the hen dip a snuff. The bitty can't do it, but he struts his stuff. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you lie in there? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <coughs> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field, a mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? The 23rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is underway in Eatonville. Janie Gould talks with Hurston biographer Virginia Lynn Moylan about Hurston's relationship with the Smathers family. An enduring political legend in Florida has said that U.S. Senator Claude Pepper was soundly defeated back in 1950 because of some fancy words that his opponent, George Smathers, uttered to mislead backwood voters. Example, Smathers supposedly accused Pepper of practicing celibacy before his marriage. At the time, African-American writer Zora Neale Hurston was helping Smathers' father, Judge Frank Smathers, write his autobiography. She supported George Smathers. Author Lynn Moylan writes about this in her new book about Hurston's last decade. She had this great slogan that she made up for him. You can't make a meal out of Pepper. And that's interesting because Pepper might have been considered quite a bit more liberal than Smathers. When you look at the historical time period, you'll find that George Smathers was less racist than Claude Pepper. Claude Pepper made speeches promising that he would do nothing to change the Southern customs. Like the poll tax? Exactly. Another political issue that hurt Claude Pepper and that encouraged Hurston 
evidence to support Smathers is that Claude Pepper was a supporter of Stalin. Did Zora's support for Smathers bring in some black votes? I would think that it did. She promoted the fact that Mathers was a supporter of the black population being able to attend games at the Orange Bowl. He did believe that integration was something to be desired, but he, like Hurston, felt that it should be done gradually. George Smathers has been criticized for making a speech that he never made. Which one was that? It's the infamous thespian. His sister was a thespian in New York or something like that? Claude oh, Pepper's it, sister? It was really, really, really awful. When I talked to Bruce Smathers about this, he said what people don't realize is that even though this infamous speech was supposed to be delivered to the poor backwood residents of North Florida, for Smathers to have quoted things like, are you aware that Claude Pepper is known all over Washington as a shameless extrovert? It would have been an insult to the businessmen and the attorneys and the teachers that were also in North Florida. The Miami Herald and other newspapers had people following them around, writing down every single thing they said. There was not one person who could come forward and claim that he made those statements. He didn't call Pepper Red Pepper? No, actually, that came from the Washington Post. Pepper was going around the country supporting Stalin. The Washington Post was upset by that. Besides consulting Bruce Smathers, who is George Smathers' son, Moylan says she studied Pepper biographies and researched the historical record. Hurston has been soundly criticized for supporting Smathers, but whenever you look at the record, you can understand why she would support Smathers. Did she have an effect on the outcome, in your opinion? I don't think so. She worked with George Smathers' cantankerous father, Southern conservative. How did that work out? Well, the best way I would describe it is working with Judge Smathers to Hurston was like running against the wind of a Category 5 hurricane. That's not what she said. No, that's how I describe it. According to his son, he had a beastly disposition, and he was a bigoted Southern man. It made it very difficult for him at first to accept the fact that Hurston could complete this intellectual task that he could not. As time went on, he began to see that Zora was brilliant. With his own family, Frank Smathers used to provoke arguments and then cover his ears to shut out responses, Moylan said. He tried the same tactic with Hurston. Whenever he would plug his fingers up after an argument, she would actually inform him that he would listen to her. He simply pulled his fingers out and went on talking. The book was published privately. Do you think she really got into his psyche? No, it wasn't noteworthy. Vanity Press? Oh, yeah. She did not put her talent into it. He pretty much dictated it to her. She was a stenographer, sort of. Pretty much. But she got the job done. And then nobody else could deal with him. Janie Gould spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by the University Press of Florida. The 23rd annual Zora Festival is underway in Eatonville. The town is celebrating 125 years as the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States. Bill Dudley has this look at quilters in Eatonville. And that one there, my mother made that, I call that checkerboard. And that's all cotton. And it's all handmade. Now in her 70s, Josephine Burns is one of three generations of African-American quilters from the town of Eatonville near Orlando. Burns remembers watching her mother make quilts for the family in a time when for many Americans, life's necessities were made rather than bought. Yeah, you need to walk. Yeah, you need to have coal. And you wasn't able to buy it in those days, so they used quilts. And uh, she made it out of scraps. When she passed, 
I said, well, I'm going to take this truck full of scraps, I'm going to do something with it. And that's when I started putting scraps together. 88-year-old Ella Dinkins says she learned the art from her grandmother. When we were children, we had our main meal at noontime. And then in the afternoon, we'd have tea, and she'd sit us on the porch in the swing, and we'd have embroidery and quilt making. For Shelley McKenney, one of the pleasures of creation is the sight of her grandson interacting with his very own quilt. When he was maybe nine months old, he used to like to hide under things, and I would throw that quilt over him, and, and we'd play peekaboo under the quilt. With their work on display, the three quilters were guests of honor at an event held at Eatonville's Zora Neale Hurston Museum of Fine Arts. People who see the exhibit are struck by the bold yet elegant designs of the quilts. Some are made from scraps with jumbled colors and print patterns in a kind of chaotic rhythm. Others follow more traditional styles and patterns. It started out as need to have quilts to keep you warm, but they're done with such beautiful assembly of materials and a spirit of creativity that just calls out for us to notice them. It's a part of our heritage in America that we haven't learned a lot about. Susan Rossoff is curator of education at the Orlando Museum of Art, hosting the internationally acclaimed G's Bend Quilters exhibit. She says G's Bend and parallel exhibits like Eatonville's serve to redefine the way we look at a traditional art form often taken for granted. We thought of, of quilting as stemming from a colonial tradition being very patterned with a lot of attention to how they're pieced together, how fine the stitching is and how closely the corners match. But the spirit of these quilts comes from a totally different place. Quilt patterns are often improvised. The quilters spoke of going where the finger leads them. While no longer using cloth from flour and grain sacks, factory scraps, and old work clothes as their grandmothers once did, each of the three prefers stitching mostly by hand. It's art. It's beautiful. It's beautiful work. And you see what your fingers can do. It's, it's relaxation. That's what it is. Because when you are sewing, you have your mind on making your stitches correctly and don't stick your fingers so much. <laughs> I think it's inherited. It, it was just something I just knew how to do. It's just a part of my being, really. I, you know, I, I can't help it. They're not what we expect, what we would pick up you know, or see in the catalog that comes to our house. They startle us with their originality, and they're full of surprises. We realize that these were created with scraps, with things that were left over, and so we appreciate that we don't have to always go to the store and buy something that creativity comes from inside and that we're honoring that. That, that spirit. Making a quilt is part of a textile art that dates back to the dawn of humanity, according to University of Central Florida cultural anthropologist Elaine Zorn. When we think about early humans, we think about stone tools usually, but probably the first tools were made from textiles. They may have been made by women, and they were probably bags, bags made out of vegetable fiber nets to haul around those babies and all the food that people were gathering. The Eatonville quilters want to pass on their craft. Plans are to invite young people to participate in a public program at the museum. But some, like Ella Dinkins, are skeptical. Some of them might want to do this, but if you can't put it on the computer and do it, then they're not interested. The technology generally is very simple. A needle, a bunch of sticks, 
the true technology is in the mind of the creator. And so when it's not passed down, it's lost. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. Find out more on our website at myfloridahistory.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.